All right. Welcome. Welcome to this class. I'm glad you're here. Before I forget it, I need to clarify an announcement I made a, a minute ago. I made a blunder. Uh, there is no sign-up list back there for the marriage seminar. It's been taken down because it was full, and so you can't sign up back there, but you still can come. Just let Rick know, or you let me know, and I'll let Rick know. It'd be better for you to write it down and give it to Rick. <laughs> yeah. If you tell me right after class, and I say I'm going to tell Rick, I will mean that from the bottom of my heart, but it may never make it to Rick, unless it's written down. So um, I'd love for you to come, though, and there is still room, but um, try, to, try to get that info to Rick tonight. So First uh, Samuel 22, I'd, I'd love for you to turn there with me. In fact, it'll help you a lot if you turn and look at this text with us, a brief intro to where we are so that we're up to speed. Some of you may be new to the class. Many of you, most of you, I'm sure, have been here for a while. We're back in First Samuel. We're going to finish this quarter, finish this book this quarter, Lord willing, over the next couple months as we do roughly a chapter a week and get done with a may have to do a little bit more than that, but um, we'll, we'll get through this book, Lord willing. So we're in 1 Samuel. Just to uh, situate this book again chronologically and uh, as far as God's, God's plan, God's, as, we, as lots of people call it, and I refer to it this way a lot with, with you guys, as God's grand narrative, this, this big storyline, which I think is a pretty important thing to do whenever we talk about the Bible so that we, we situate it within that storyline somewhere so that we can understand where it is and how it relates to us and how we fit into the story that God is working. We, we believe that the Bible is a, a big book of 66 individual books, but they all fit together to form one coherent narrative that has a story and a progression and is going somewhere. A uh, fancy word for that, it's going to the eschaton. It's going to the uh, the, the end things, it's coming, it's going to a place where God's going to reconcile and redeem all things. And so we, we believe that's where the story's heading. So we find ourselves in a, in a section of that story in 1 Samuel. It's typically called, this, this portion is called the, the day of the kings, the era or epic of the kings. Specifically, narrowing it down a little bit more, it's a united kingdom, which implies there's coming a time where it's not going to be united, it's going to be divided. So, so there we are, time-wise, a pretty good number to think about for David is around 1,000 B.C. Because you're probably, most, most of us aren't going to remember specific numbers, but around that time, I mean, and they don't know for sure, but roughly speaking, Saul reigned from about 1095 to 1055, and David from 1055 to 1015, and Solomon from 1015 to 975. But if you remember 1000 BC, you're in the right ballpark. It's, if you're thinking about, you know, like Abraham is about 2000 BC, David's about 1000 BC, Jesus comes along and, uh, you know, zero, if you want to call it that. So we're talking about 1000 years between some significant Bible characters. So uh, here we are in the life of David. He has not yet begun reigning. Uh, so things are pretty bad for David, and they're going to be bad for several more chapters um, because 
Saul, the reigning king, knows that David is going to take his place. God told him this. He told him, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you because you're disobedient, and I'm going to give it to someone better than you, someone more faithful than you. And Saul has kind of put, put two and two together, as the saying goes, and he knows that this person God was speaking about is David. And so Saul has gotten increasingly hostile toward David because he knows David's going to take the, the kingdom away from him. So that explains some of the hostility we're going to see tonight. It gets, it gets pretty bad in our text this evening. So last week we, we studied 1 Samuel 21 and we, we looked at the text there where David is running. I mean, he's finally, things have kind of gone back and forth. David has been in favor with Saul and then out of favor, in favor, out of favor, and so on. And then, you know, a couple of chapters ago, it, it kind of came to a head where David said to his friend Jonathan, who's the king's son, he said, I don't understand why your dad's got it out for me. And Jonathan said, well, I don't, I'm not sure that he does. And David said, yeah, pretty sure, pretty sure when he threw the spear at me multiple times, it wasn't a sign of friendship, you know. So they set up this thing, this is in chapter 20, they set up this deal where if this happens, then we'll know with some finality that your dad's got it out for me. So they, they set this thing up, and it happens, and Saul is mad, and he actually throws the spear at his own son, Jonathan, and that's going to come up again tonight, uh, that, that incident a little bit. And uh, so David and Jonathan have this last tearful reunion. They're going to get together. They're going to talk one more time in maybe, maybe next chapter or the chapter after. But for the, for the most part, David and Jonathan, they're, they're, they're best buddies, really close. They have this tearful goodbye in chapter 20 because they know things will never be the same again, and David's on the run. So he goes to the house of, this is important for our text tonight, he goes to the, to the place where the priests were, and, and the priest's name was Ahimelech. And David's on the run. And he goes to Ahimelech and he says, can you, can you help me out? You know, can, you, can you do anything for me? And Ahimelech, basically what David wants is, you know, he wants some food. And Ahimelech says, well, I've, I've got some bread. It's holy bread, but if you've kept yourself pure, then, then I'll give you some of the bread. And he gives him some of the bread. And David says, do you have a weapon? And Ahimelech said, well, I only have this weapon from Goliath, this spear that you took from him when you killed him. I've got it. And David said, well, there's nothing better than that. So he takes it and he goes. And, and David's on the run. He, he, this is, that's important, by the way. Remember the foreshadowing? If you were here last week, observing this exchange between David and Ahimelech was this fellow named Doeg. His name sounds kind of sinister, doesn't it? Doeg. Who names their child Doeg? but Doeg the Edomite. Doeg's a bad guy. And it basically says there in chapter 21, Doeg was there. And then it just kind of moves on, and Doeg's going to come up here in a second. So David gets the sword, he gets the food, and he keeps going. His, his parents come to see him, and, his par and he takes his parents to the king of Moab, who's another perpetual enemy of Israel. And he says, will you take care of my parents until I figure out what God's going to do with us? And then what happens? He leaves. He goes back to the stronghold. He's, he goes to Judah. And, and that's where we ended last week. Verse, first five verses of chapter 22 we looked at. And, and, and basically what happens there is David becomes the, the, the king or the leader of a group of misfits. People who were poor. People who were in trouble. Whatever. Just people who didn't belong. They come to David. 
So he's the band, he's the head of the band of misfits. And that's where the text ends. Or at least that's, that's where that section ends. That brings us to where we are. All right, 1 Samuel 22. If you would, just follow along. I think I'd like to read this in, in sections here, and we'll get through the end of the chapter through the course of tonight. But 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Let's read a few verses together. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at, as at this day. Then answered Doeg, there he is, Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. All right. So look at that. It's kind of interesting, I think. It's kind of interesting. Saul... Basically, if you're looking at the text, let me just point out a couple of things. Saul is, is holding court. That's what the language means here. It sounds kind of strange to us, but there are several clues here that this is, this is like Saul is sitting on his royal throne and he's dispensing royal judgments. That's the language. And a couple of clues. He's sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, the tamarisk tree, by the way, in the Old Testament, carries some significance as being a place where important things happen. He's on the height. That's another signal there. He's on the height on a hilltop. Oftentimes, they'd go to the tops of hills to conduct official business. He's got his spear in his hand. He likes to throw that at people. He's already done that to David and Jonathan, his son. And all his servants are standing about him. So the, this, this language here signifies that Saul is issuing these royal pronouncements. All right, that's, that's what the language suggests. So he said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin. Saul did what most kings, even to this day, I, I read this today, as a matter of fact, didn't know this, but makes sense. Even to this day in Middle Eastern in the Middle Eastern world, that when a person becomes king or ruler, he, and this just happens outside the Middle East, but consistently happens there, that when he goes into a position of prominence like, like being king, he will surround himself with his family, with people he knows well, and people of his own particular family unit. And I'm not saying, again, that doesn't happen outside the Middle East, but it's, it's been a pattern there for, for a long, long time. And you know, what, what's that called? Nepotism, when you surround yourself with family. And um, Saul does, when he says the tribe of Benjamin, uh, when he says you people of Benjamin, well, that's his people. That's Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, just as a historical note, in Philippians 3, Paul the apostle says, you know, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was given the name, his birth name, of course, his Jewish name was Saul. He was named after you know, he was named in this lineage. So the Apostle Paul was of the same, same tribe. 
So he says this. He says, you know, my people, my, my family, how could you betray me like this? How could you do me like this? He says to them. Why, why would you do that? The son of Jesse is a kind of a pejorative phrase. He doesn't call him by his name. He calls him the son of Jesse. He does this often. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Why? Like, what, is he, what has he promised you? Has he promised you that he's going to make you rich? Has he promised you that he's going to put you in a position of prominence? What, what, what's the deal? What has he given you that's made you conspire against me? He's not going to do any of that. I'm the one who, who's given you that. You're my people. He's from a different tribe entirely. He's not going to do anything for you. He's going to surround himself with his people. And why are you conspiring against me? Now, they hadn't conspired against him. But you see signs of delusion here with Saul, as often happens. Uh, with people in situations like this. So he says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Son, he's talking about Jonathan, as you know. None of you sorry for me. <laughs> do you read this like I do? This is like, what's, what world is he living in? Nobody's sorry for me. Nobody discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. So now he's kind of, he's kind of switched it here. And he's, he's not putting the blame on David as much as he's putting the blame on his own son. My son is the one who stirred up David against me. That's, I mentioned earlier that, you know, he, he, he throws the spear at Jonathan. I think back a couple of chapters ago, he, when he threw the spear at Jonathan, he knows, or in, in his mind he thinks he knows, that Jonathan is the one who's stirring up David against him. To lie in wait at the end of verse 8. Well, has David lain in wait for Saul? Has David done anything to hurt Saul? I mean, yeah, you guys may know how this story goes from here on out, but in the next few chapters as we read that, it's fascinating. David has multiple chances to kill Saul, uh, and he doesn't, does he? In fact, he, I mean, he's got an opportunity in a cave. Saul is there. He's exposed. He's vulnerable and David says I'm not going to draw, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed I'm not going to do that. So not only is David not laying in wait, but he also hasn't even and will or will not take advantage of take advantage of opportunities that he does have. So Saul is delusional here. Then we get to Doeg. Let me, let me pause there just for a second before I read that because I think that there's something interesting here. And just to maybe frame this a little bit with stuff we're familiar with. Um, you know, stuff going on in North Korea now, of course. I don't know much about North Korea. It's called, you know, Hermit Kingdom for a while. It's not quite as like it was in that sense. But the, the leaders of North Korea started just being curious about what's going on over there, and they're popped up on the audio book section of the Hoover's library, this book about North Korea from this British journalist who went there in 2000, I think he was 2000, pretty recent, um, maybe 2013. No, that wasn't right. It was, it was longer than that, but he wrote the book recently. But anyway, so started... He, he tells a story about North Korea going back to 1945 at the end of World War II and 
And uh, what was the first one? Uh, Kim Il Sung. Kim Il Sung was was the first one, who who kind of got everything together in North Korea and and became a dictator, and and things started getting really bad there. Kind of colluded with the Soviet Union after the war. Got a lot of his ideas from there, and um, created this this uh, this dictatorship. And then Kim Jong Il, his son took over in 1984, I think. And then his son, uh, Kim Jong-un, took over in uh, 2011. Now, the fascinating thing about that, I was reading this text today, and then I was reading some other stuff about this particular text, and it was talking about how Saul is in a position now where he's, he's kind of deluded in, in that he doesn't see things rationally. He doesn't see them clearly. He's, he's um, uh, he thinks, I'm thinking of, uh, what's the word? He's, uh, he thinks everybody's out to get him. He's um, paranoid. Yeah, he's, got, he's, he's paranoid. He's paranoid. He thinks everybody's out to get him when they're not. He thinks David is, is out to get him. He's, he's accusing his son of doing this stuff. And it's amazing, amazing. That attribute is consistent with people who get in positions of power and they surround themselves by people who only tell them what they want to hear. And it was, that book was talking about Kim Jong-un and, and his father and his grandfather before him. They, they surround themselves with people who only tell them the good stuff. And if you tell them something they don't want to hear, he kills you. So, you know, if you tell them the economy's not good, dictator, okay, you're dead. I mean, it, it really, it's, 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 it's sad and it's amazing how, how this sort of mentality works. And not only that, but they, I mean, you, you've, you've read history and you know about the Stalin purges of the 19, you know, 1940s and, uh, and, and Hitler got like that. And I'm not saying Saul is on that, that kind of level mentally or certainly not in his, his negative influence as far as the number of people, but it's this men mentality that's, that's fairly consistent. It's a paranoia. It is, uh, it is uh, not believing people. It's believing everyone's out to get you. It's surrounding yourself with these, these people who, who believe that, or well, at least they'll say they believe that you're you know, a god, you, you're infallible, you know, that sort of, you see that kind of attribute here on a small scale with Saul. He's created this stuff in his mind. I think he really believes it. I think he thinks David is out to get him. I think he thinks Jonathan, his son, is conspiring. I think he's so deluded by his position of power, such as it was, surrounding himself by the people of Benjamin, who are afraid, and you see what happens next here, if you've read ahead, maybe they're afraid for good reason. If you contradict Saul, you know, you, you die. That's what happens to Ahimelech here. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, these, this, these attributes, you see that when people find themselves or get to be in positions of prominence and they create an environment where people cannot speak to them in honest and open ways, it creates a kind of delusion. And that's what you see here with Saul. And it, it pro produces disastrous results. Now, what happens here in the next section a few hundred people. I mean, 85 priests and their wives and kids. So you're, you're talking about, you know, two, three, four hundred people die as a result of Saul's delusion here. And we see it happening in the world today on a, on a massive scale, you know, North Korea and some other places historically with dictators, with this kind of thinking that, that you know, goes haywire.
and certainly with nuclear arsenals and that sort of thing that, that the bigger things happen. Okay, so, you know, verse 9, you get to Doeg. Again, the foreshadowing of chapter 21. Then you got Doeg here referred again. No, but nobody spoke up. You know, basically what he says is, you people haven't told me anything. Why do you think they hadn't told him? A couple of possibilities. They, I think they loved and respected David. They knew he wasn't guilty of anything. And also, this man is so volatile and unpredictable, why are you going to risk your neck and tell him something he doesn't want to hear? Um, so I don't know which of the factors played in more heavily than that, but he certainly, th- these guys didn't say anything. And, uh, and then Doeg, he's an Edomite, so that tells you something. Uh, tells you something about him. He's not a part of Israel and doesn't have the same respect for the Torah, the law, as these other people. They were a part of the covenant. They, they knew something of the law. So Doeg is an Edomite. Edomites were perpetual enemies of Israel. He apparently doesn't have any respect for the name of God. And so he says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. This is a reference to what happened in the last chapter. I saw him coming to the priest, and he inquired of the Lord for him. So Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. That's an important thing here. And gave him provisions. And by the way, the word provision carries with it a, a kind of a military connotation. He's, he's, it's kind of subtle, but he's implying that Ahimelech supplied him with military provisions. Now, what he did do was he gave him a sword with a spear of Goliath, right? But the, the way Doeg phrases this, it's almost like, yeah, I saw him. Number one, he talked to the Lord for him, like he prayed for him. And number two, he supplied his army. Well, he didn't supply his army. He gave him a sword that David had earned, you know, years earlier in the battle with Goliath. So he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So, you know, the way he phrases that, it's, it's kind of, it carries this strong feeling that Doeg basically says, yeah, I know exactly what happened. Ahimelech, he's, he's on David's side. He's praying to God for him and he's supplying his rebellion and all this. So you can imagine how that's going to play with Saul. That's what he wanted to hear. What he wanted. All right, let's read on. So the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, verse 11, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who's the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. I want to stop there for a second. You... You probably want to read on. Now, you know, it's a big slaughter. Bad, bad stuff. Before we get to that, I want you to see what's happening here. I mean, what, what Saul does is he calls Ahimelech about an hour away. Uh, is where Ahimelech was, the city of Nob. And um, he calls him there, and he basically makes the accusation. Remember, he's sitting at the top of this hill 
under the tamarisk tree, got his spear, got his royal court surrounding him. So Ahimelech knows what's going on. This is, a, this is an official inquiry. Makes the accusation against him. You've conspired against me. You gave him bread. You gave him a sword. You've inquired of God for him. You've prayed for him, basically gotten the will of God on him. He's risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Again, none of that was, or part of that was true, true but a lot of it wasn't. And I love Ahimelech's response. And this is very good. Notice how he, what he does here. And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Everything he says here is true. He's faithful. He's your son-in-law. He was the captain over your bodyguard. David had been faithful in that duty. He's honored in your house. There's a subtle reference there to the fact that though Ahimelech didn't know this, earlier, Saul's own people weren't willing to bring an accusation against David. You know, when, when Saul said, why, why are you guys betraying me? They, they, they didn't say anything because they were faithful to David there. They're, you know, he's honored in your house. When you go back and read previous chapters, David was respected. He was, he was these guys' boss. He's the captain of the bodyguard. That's who these guys are, okay? They knew David. He had been their boss. They knew what kind of man he was. And they're just sitting there, you know, standing there saying, we're not going to speak anything against him. And they don't do what the king tells them to do in just a second either, by the way, when he tells them to kill these priests. So, Himelech's just saying what's true. David's a good man. And he says, verse 15, is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? Like, it's not, this isn't unusual. I didn't inquire of him, inquire of the Lord for him because he was rebelling against you. I didn't even know about that. This is something I do for him Whenever. It's not the first time. This, is, this isn't a weird thing for me to inquire of God for him. I didn't know anything about any kind of rebellion. So, don't impute anything to his servant. That's, you know, respectful language to refer to himself. Um, don't, you know, don't think I've done anything bad or anybody in my house. He probably knows what's coming. I think he probably, I think he knows. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. I didn't know anything about it. So, you know, how can you accuse me of this? And the king said, this is what, this is what people like him who are thinking like him, this is what they do. You're going to die. I don't care what you say. Everything he'd said was true. Saul didn't care about the truth. He's so filled with bitter and rage and anger and jealousy and delusion that, that he's going to do what he was planning to do anyway. Didn't matter. I don't think it mattered what Ahimelech said. So, you'll die, and your family. Verse 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, what, remember what David's role was previously? Captain of the guard. Right? So, so these guards knew David. They worked for him. He tells them, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Again, why do you think that is? A couple of things, probably. They knew David. And they also weren't willing to strike down the priests of God because they knew they had enough respect for God and respect for the law of God and respect for David, the servant of God, that they were unwilling, even in the face of, of this despot like Saul at this point, they were unwilling to obey his command and they wouldn't do it. 
So guess who's there? <laughs> there he is again. Doag. King said to him, to Doag, you turn and strike the priest. Doag has no such qualms or reservations about striking the priest of the Lord. He doesn't have respect for the Lord. So he turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Priests is what that means. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. Now, again, pause there with me for a second. There's, there's more to this than you might know just from a, a cursory reading of this. Okay, so Doeg strikes the priests. I don't know if you remember this, but um, last week there's this, what we might read is just a throwaway phrase back with, when it introduces us to Doeg back in the last chapter. Remember what it said about him? What verse is it? Yeah, it's seven. Now, I'm in chapter 21, verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, detained before the Lord? The, the language suggests that Doeg had, had been, like he had gotten in trouble for something and he was detained. So, you know, you can speculate about this. Why was he so eager to kill the priest of the Lord? Well, if you look in this chapter, it might be that he was eager to do what Saul wanted to be done because these same priests had been involved in his imprisonment in the previous chapter. He was detained before the Lord back in Nob. And so Saul says, Doeg, go kill these guys. And Doeg says, okay, I'll take care of it. Teach them never to detain me again, you know. Maybe that connection is a little bit tenuous, but it's interesting nonetheless. But one more thing that is more interesting than that, and that is this. The language in verse 19, he put to the sword. And then again at the end of verse 19, he put to the sword. This is holy war language, holy war language that's used a few times in the Old Testament of God of God, God's, God uses this language rarely, but occasionally, when he's asking his people to put to the sword a city that is so filled with rebellion and wickedness and immorality that the city, God has decided, needs to be eliminated. When, when people are so wrapped up in their rebellion to God and everything God stands for, on rare, isolated, but nonetheless clear occasions in the Old Testament, God issues this command. And it's called, H-E-R-E-M um, uh, -E is the Hebrew word for it, harem, or C-H-E-R-E-M. It's like a hard cut on the sound of it. Put under, sometimes it's translated, put under the ban, all right? It's used a few times. Like, well, here's, here's why this is interesting to me. It's used earlier in 1 Samuel when God tells Saul to put under the ban the king whose name was Agag and the Amalekites. You remember what Saul did? He disobeyed. 
He was unwilling to obey the command of God to put to the sword Agag and the Amalekites. And it was in that chapter, that's 1 Samuel 15, it was in that chapter where God, because of Saul's disobedience, God sent Samuel to Saul, and the word from God was, Saul, because you have been disobedient and you've been unwilling to listen to the voice of God, I am taking the kingdom away from you. Here's the interesting thing. What you've got here in chapter 22 is what Saul was unwilling to do in, direct, in, in, a, in, a, in responding to a direct command of God in eliminating a city that was an outright and blatant and perverse rebellion against God, what he was unwilling to do with Agag, he was willing to do in disobedience to the Lord's command to the priests of God. So what he did not do in 1 Samuel 15 to the enemies of God, he was willing to do to the servants of God in chapter 22. He put them under the ban. See how this comes together? It just gives you insight into the character of Saul, what he's, what he's like. Disobedience in chapter 15 and the direct opposite kind of disobedience here. He disobeyed God there and not doing what God commanded. Here, he's doing the very opposite of what God would have him to do. And he put to the sword the priests of God. That's what Doeg did at Saul's command. It's interesting, isn't it? And remember that? Um, he put, you know, the language here is just remarkably uh, reminiscent of chapter 15. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. And remember when Samuel got to, uh, got to, uh, is there a name of the city? Uh, Agag City? Anyway, when Samuel got there, he said, you know, Saul came out and said, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. This is chapter 15. And Samuel said, why do I hear these these animals. If you've obeyed the voice of God, why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen? Why do I hear that? You see the language here? At, at Saul's command, Doag has done what he, what he wouldn't do a little bit earlier. Okay, so um, that's, that's a massacre, you know? It's a massacre. I don't know how many ultimately were killed, but at least a couple hundred, you're guessing, 300, 400? Depends on how many Women and children were there. And then you've got this conclusion to the chapter, verses 20 through 23. One, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, you, just as a, as a note, you may go back and read First Samuel, first few chapters. Um, God predicted this. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eliminate the house of Eli. This is this priestly house. I'm going to eliminate them, but one of them is going to survive. Well, here he is. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. And that's the end of the chapter. And uh, basically you have the fulfillment of what God had said 50 years earlier. 50 years earlier, God had said, I'm going to take away, I'm going to eliminate the, the, this priestly line of Eli, but I will preserve the remnant. And that remnant is Abiathar here. Uh, you know, you've got... Uh, we're basically out of time. I don't know how much of this we have time to talk about, but 
I skipped over something a minute ago. You know, back in the previous chapter, we were looking at David coming to Ahimelech, and basically David asked for bread, and then he gives him bread, and he gives him the sword, you know that. Um, we didn't know that David inquired of the Lord, but I think that's an interesting thing that Doeg brought up. He said, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, and when Ahimelech showed up before Saul, Ahimelech said that, yeah, I inquired of the Lord for him, but it's not like that's the only time. I think there are little clues here given as to the character of David, and, and you see them coming up. Now, David is imperfect in so many ways, but David was, as we'll see later on, was unwilling to draw his sword against the king, the Lord's anointed. He has respect for, for God. What we didn't learn in the last chapter that we learned here is David, not only did he go to Ahimelech for bread and a sword, but he went there to seek counsel from the Lord. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. And then you hear the language, like we, at the first part of the chapter, which we covered last week, Ahimelech goes to the king of Moab and says, will you take care of my parents until I hear what the Lord is going to do? You see these references where David, though imperfect, and he's struggling, he's stressed out, and he makes some bad decisions at times, but you see a consistency with him where he inquires of the Lord. He wants to honor the name of the Lord. He really does. However imperfectly he does it, that's his goal. With, with Saul, you see the direct opposite. You see glimpses where he acknowledges the Lord, but, it, but you always get the feeling it's just lip service with him. With David, it's not lip service. It's in his heart. He does it imperfectly. There's a big difference there. And certainly, we can, we can close on that note tonight. You know, not everybody who wears the name Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord is a child of God. You know, there's a difference between what you say and how you live. There's a difference, there's a difference in, in a person who is imperfect and is you know, sinful at times, you know, all that, but whose heart is pointed toward God. There's a difference between that guy, that person, and the other person over here who calls upon the name of the Lord in some sense, but you just get this sense based on the direction of his or her life that there's really no passion there. That's the difference between, big difference between David and all of his successors from Solomon all the way. Some of them showed glimpses of David's heart, but none of them to the extent that David really wanted to walk with the Lord. And that's why God preserved the kingdom. Solomon messed up. Rehoboam messed up on down the line, but God preserved that kingdom all the way. And the last one was, uh, was uh, Jehoiakim or Jeconiah at the end of Second Chronicles. That was the last one. And the kingdom stopped there. And then, of course, you know what the prophecy said and what was fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus, born of Mary, was a descendant of David, and he took, upon, he took the scepter of David and now reigns over the kingdom as the son of David. You know, so that's why David, a man after God's own heart, you see that, that devotion to the Lord where God never took the kingdom away from his lineage in spite of their wickedness in honor of David. I think that's pretty neat. And Jesus wearing the name of the son of David um, even to this day. So you see honor here. All right, thanks so much. We're, we're out of time. I appreciate your, uh, your good attention as I lectured. <laughs>